Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. For the second year in a row, subsistence salmon fishing in Alaska's Yukon River is dire. The runs of Chinook salmon have collapsed. At the same time, across the state, commercial fishing in Bristol Bay is seeing record hauls of sockeye salmon. They're both part of an unpredictable boom and bust cycle of salmon in Alaska and the Pacific Northwest. We'll get perspectives of the recent swings in salmon populations and hear how tribes are working to protect or revive salmon numbers. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. President Joe Biden on Tuesday signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. Biden says it delivers on the administration's promise to meet the climate crisis and help working families. The Inflation Reduction Act tackles climate issues with a focus on clean energy, bringing down energy costs and reducing pollution. Additionally, it seeks to lower health care costs and tax high-income people and large corporations. Biden says it's one of the most significant laws in history. We are in a season of substance. This administration began amid a dark time in America. As Jim said, a once-in-a-century pandemic, devastating joblessness, clear and present threats to democracy and the rule of law, doubts about America's future itself. And yet, we've not wavered, we've not flinched, and we've not given in. Instead, we're delivering results for the American people. We didn't tear down, we build up. During a tribal broadband announcement last week, Vice President Kamala Harris talked about the Inflation Reduction Act investing in tribal communities. We will fund climate resilience and adaptation programs to help tribal communities address the climate crisis. We will provide emergency drought relief to tribal communities across the West. We will electrify homes across Indian country, and we will help tribes build wind and solar power projects to lower the cost of electricity for Native families. Harris says while they tackle climate issues, the administration will rely on indigenous knowledge in protecting the earth. Democrats are praising the law while Republicans strongly oppose it. Not one Republican voted for the bill. Unofficial results in Alaska's special election Tuesday night for U.S. House show Mary Peltola, Democrat and Alaska Native, in the lead. Republicans Sarah Palin and Nick Begich are coming in second and third. Results will not be known until later this month when the last ballots are counted. The winner will serve out the rest of Congressman Don Young's term until January. Young died unexpectedly in March. All three candidates are also running for the seat in the general election and are expected to advance. A groundbreaking ceremony was held last weekend in western New Mexico for the National Code Talker Museum on the Navajo Nation. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, this year marks the 80th anniversary of the creation of the group, 
who used their native language to help win World War II. The ceremony near the Navajo Nation capital of Window Rock was attended by code talker and former tribal chairman Peter McDonald. He's one of three members of the elite group of soldiers who are still alive. Navajo President Jonathan Nez and other military and elected officials also attended the event that took place on National Navajo Code Talkers Day. The state of New Mexico in 2019 provided a million dollars to the Navajo Nation for the construction of the Navajo Code Talker Museum. The U.S. recruited more than 400 Navajos to become code talkers during World War II. They used their then-unridden native language to create an unbreakable code for military communications, confounding the Japanese. The code talkers participated in all battles led by the U.S. Marines in the Pacific between 1942 and 1945, including Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal, and are credited with helping turn the tide of the war. For more than two decades, the Code Talkers' role was classified, but they've since become revered heroes, both on the reservation and elsewhere. A separate event was also held in Phoenix to mark the 80th anniversary of the creation of the Code Talkers. Thomas H. Begay, another one of the three surviving Navajo Code Talkers, spoke at the event. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With so many organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. So AARP brings together no-charge employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, discounts, and more at aarp.org veterans who support this show. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB, who support this program. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Outside forces are having dramatic effects on salmon runs along the West Coast and in Alaska. Tribes in Northern California documented a massive fish kill this month, caused at least partly by sediment from runoff in an area scorched by wildfire. It could have a dramatic effect on tribal salmon fishing. In Alaska, the Chinook run has crashed for the second year in a row but commercial harvests in Bristol Bay are at record levels. Elsewhere, tribes are working to protect habitat and remove dams that have all but wiped out the salmon runs that thrived for thousands of years. We'll get updates from several places today and get the rundown of the current state of traditional and commercial salmon fishing. You can join the conversation, too. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us first today is Olivia Eberts. She is a reporter with KYUK Radio. She's speaking with us from Bethel, Alaska. Olivia, great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Sean. Well, Olivia, ordinarily during this time of the year, freezers of Alaska native subsistence fishers are packed full of salmon, but that's not the case this year. What's going on? Yeah, so for the second year in a row, um, both the Kuskokwim and Yukon Rivers are experiencing some historically low runs of uh, Chinook and Chum. Um, There 
uh, also this year has been a record low of um, coho runs on the Kuskokwim, which usually was sort of the saving grace of the Kuskokwim. Uh, the state has actually been forced to close fishing due to those low numbers. So it has been difficult for people to fill their freezers this year. Okay. Now, I mean, there are different types of salmon. Uh, you mentioned the Chinook, uh, the Chum, there's uh, the big, the, the king salmon. Are, are they all facing these th- same threats to their numbers? Um, they're all facing slightly different threats. So king, yes, you're right, lots of different types of salmon, and they confusingly all have two names, too. So <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to stick to just one. Chinook is the same thing as king, um, and uh, silver is the same thing as coho. Um, chum can also be called dog salmon um, or keta, keta. Um, so I'll try to stick to just one of those terms. Uh, we'll call them Chinook, Chum, and Silvers. How about that? Um, that works. There are a couple other types as well, but we'll focus on those. So uh, starting with Chinook, um, those on the Kuskokwim, those numbers have sort of been dwindling for a while. Um, right now they're not at their lowest point ever, but they are they are low. They're not doing well. People are Fishermen are reporting slightly higher numbers than last year, but Nothing's looking great um, in terms of the the chum numbers on the Kuskokwim. Chum is sort of like the most has typically kind of been the most reliable fish on both of these rivers, on both the Kuskokwim and the Yukon. Um, and those numbers are uh, at their second lowest on record on both the Kuskokwim and the Yukon rivers, um, which is causing a lot of problems um, because the Yukon actually built a whole uh, commercial fishery around the Chum. So that hasn't been able to operate in two years. Um, they used to provide about 750 summer jobs in just one, what's called a census area. It's like a county on the lower Yukon River. Um, so 750 jobs in, in you know, an area with, gosh, I'm not quite sure how many villages, maybe 10 or so villages, smallish villages. So that's a lot of employment that they're missing this summer, too. Um, And Chinook on the Yukon this year have reached critical lows. They are at just a fraction of their normal uh, run size. So this is the lowest year on record for Chinook on the Yukon. And scientists, I mean, besides users, obviously users are concerned, but scientists are starting to get really concerned. Um, And scientists tend to not be concerned super quickly. <laughs> they said, weirdly in fisheries, I've noticed a little bit of optimism. People talk about fish um, bouncing back, you know, fish being resilient. But this year, that conversation, even in science, is starting to change a little bit. Um, in terms of silver salmon, uh, those, you know, there are some on the Yukon, but they're not super, Not they don't run super abundantly. But on the Kuskokwim, in the wake of the low, it, the the runs have been low for years for Chinook, so those have really been the saving grace. Those come a lot later in the season, so after the Chinook run has finished, people who haven't really gotten to, you know, fish the Chinook runs because of those low numbers, they're like, well, that's fine. I can go after silvers and put away, like, a bunch of fillets of silvers, like throw in, throw in a long net, 75-foot uh, net, 
do one drift off your boat down the river and you can catch normally 30. Um, some people have told me that they've caught 200 in a drift. Um, and this year, you know, I went out the other day when the river was still open. It's closed now to subsistence silver fishing. And I think we caught four in three hours. Four and three hours. Okay. And then, so you mentioned these just dramatic drops in the number of salmon. And I, I know that some counts in some Alaska rivers, they're in the low double digits when they should be like in the tens of thousands, right? Yeah, that is true. That is true. Um, last summer on the Yukon, the summer chum run was a tenth of its average run size. So it it was uh, it should be 1.3 million on average, and it was like whatever a tenth of that is, okay. <laughs> 300,000 or so. Now you talked about 750 commercial fishing jobs there on the Yukon, but also all of these Alaska Native folks that depend on subsistence fishing for their livelihoods. How is this impacting them? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, like you said, there's there's like the subsistence aspect. There's you know, almost everyone up and down these rivers um, eats the fish, like, as a primary way to get through the winter. And, um, you know, groceries are out here are so expensive. I was up on the Yukon uh, the other week, and I was at the mouth where things tend to be a little cheaper because every you know all the all the villages rely we're all off the road system up here so everything has to be flown in or barged in um obviously it's a short barge season here and all the way up here in alaska um and so uh towards the mouth groceries can be a little cheaper and then the farther up river you can go they kind of get a little more expensive but even at the mouth a small pack of ribs sean was almost forty dollars so when you talk about subsistence salmon, you're talking about a way for people to feed themselves and their families um, nutritiously and culturally. I mean, it's something that people have been doing, obviously, for thousands of years. So without that, um, I mean, we're literally talking about food security issues. And in the wake of inflation, you know, gas prices are coming down in the lower 48. People get one or two gas shipments sometimes in communities up here. So gas prices here in Bethel are six sixty three. Last week or two weeks ago on on the Yukon, gas prices in a up in a village, a lower river village of um, called Saint Mary's, it was eight eighty five a gallon. So when people are facing these extreme prices, um, and these low returns, it's it's really hard on families to be able to, like, literally put food on the table, um, you know, just at a basic needs level. But, yeah, like you said, too, these jobs would provide income. I've talked to a lot of people who are losing out on a lot, like, literally thousands of dollars on um, income. And without that income, you can't buy the super expensive fuel that you would maybe use to go moose hunting to try and fill some of the gap that salmon has left. So it's really like a an economic and ecological collapse. But at the same time, you have the Bristol Bay fishery, and it's a commercial fishery, as I understand, but, but it's thriving. How, how is that possible? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I think that scientists are still honing in on 
exact reasons for these crashes um, right on the Yukon and Kuskokwim. And so this summer is the first summer. Uh, o- over this past year, um, there's actually been an ongoing five-year study um, called International Year of the Salmon. Uh, a lot of countries are collaborating on it, um, and they send out scientists to study salmon in the Bering Sea and North Pacific and Gulf of Alaska to study their overwintering patterns, because salmon spend obviously most of their lives at sea and then just come back up the river to spawn. Um, but so these scientists, one of the things that they started to hone in on as a reason for this crash was marine heat waves, climate change caused marine heat waves. Um, scientists are now saying that that's likely driving the Chum crash, at least. They're still not quite sure what's driving the Chinook crash. Um, but in terms of the these record high sockeye runs, runs of red salmon, and actually we've had higher runs than normal in the Kuskokwim this this year, too. And to put this into a little bit of geographic perspective, the Kuskokwim, this is all southwest Alaska that we're talking about. So these river systems are not right next to each other, but they're not so far away either. Um, so the reason that these are con- these marine heat waves are connected to all of these systems and species is because for a while, as the ocean was warming, it was actually providing favorable conditions for Chum and Chinook salmon. It was warming to the point that their food sources were flourishing. They were doing well, like in the 70s and 80s. They were, you know, numbers were starting to tick back up. They had lows, but then they started would start to tick back up. Um, but then they hit this, you know, in the in uh, I think 2015, 2016, we had really high heat, and that caused marine heat waves and killed off some of their food and made life hard for especially juvenile salmon. And so we kind of hit the tipping point where it got too hot for them. Um, But some scientists have suggested that we're still in that sweet spot for sockeye, that it's in the sort of right period of heat where um, it's... Got it. Got it. Yeah. So the water's just about perfect for the sockeye right now. Sure. We're speaking now with Olivia Eberts, and we've got to take a short break. We'll be right back. The nation's largest native arts market marks its 100th year. The Santa Fe Indian market has grown into an expanse of native arts, vendors, a fashion show, and a film festival drawing thousands of people from all over the country. We'll come to you live from the event with a look back at the market's history and a look at what's in store. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thanks for tuning in today to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're getting a perspective on the health of salmon populations today. The fish is endangered in a lot of places in the Pacific Northwest, Alaska, and Canada, but conservation efforts and planning have helped salmon runs in other places bounce back. 
What do you think? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848 to get your comments on the air. We're speaking with Olivia Ebert. She's a reporter. She's up in Bethel, Alaska. And Olivia, sorry we had to take that quick break there, but uh, I'm just going to give a quick summary. You were saying that uh, these different breeds of salmon, they, they thrive best in certain water temperatures. So perhaps that's why the sockeye in Bristol Bay are thriving while these waters are getting warmer. But the Chinook and, and the Chum down on the Yukon uh, and another river, they're struggling. So uh, is it safe to say that as if water temperatures continue to increase, that these sockeye that are doing well now could be at risk maybe in another two, three, four, five years? You know, I don't think it's uh, safe to say anything since I'm not a scientist um, and I don't want angry scientists calling me afterwards. And I will say that, you know, most of these are just theories for now. People are, people, scientists have told me that they're fairly certain that the marine heat waves are driving the chum crash so that I can say with with confidence. But um, for the other things, you know, I mean, I think like you, your logic sounds quite logical to me. But um, again, I'm not a scientist, so I would have to defer to the expert fish biologists on that one. Okay. Olivia, thanks so much for all that background and those insights. Let's bring in another guest now. Joining us from Eureka, California, is Michael Orcutt. He's the Fisheries Department Director for the Hoopa Valley Tribe. He's Hoopa. Michael, welcome back to Native America Calling. Michael, are you there? Oops, sorry. Yeah, I had it muted. Oh, um, no worries. Yeah, it happens uh, sometimes. The invite? Yeah, absolutely, Michael. So, um, another factor at play here are wildfires, and um, how are they connected? What's their impact, especially this year with wildfires having been so severe throughout much of the West? How are they impacting the salmon? Um, well, um, I kind of wanted to just fill in a little bit of what I heard earlier on there with uh, your first guest. Sure. Um, one, one of the factors there is every different salmonid species and or races of, um, of specific salmonids have different life histories. So sometimes uh, a coho salmon, for example, um, rears into the system for a year before it goes to the ocean. So there's a multitude of factors to navigate through. And a lot of um, the things that are, there's things that you can control um, and there's things you can't control. So things like shifting and upwelling and, and ocean productivity are, are factors. But there are just things, in my opinion, that people need to understand and build complexity into the, uh, the fish population that we're trying to restore. So um, as far as um, our area, uh, we're in the Klamath Trinity Basin. Um, we're on the southern cusp, you might say, of Salmonid. Um, we have, um, I heard um, your first guest go through the, the different species. We have uh, spring and fall Chinook. We have steelhead. And we have coho salmon. We also have other species like lamprey and sturgeon that tribal people depend upon. And so um, a whole range of different things occurring in our basin, including climate change, um, as well as major initiatives. Uh, you mentioned one of them, the dam removal on the Klamath is, is um, scheduled for removal. Um, somebody could remind me that I think it's 2023. Um, but those are things underway. Uh, in the case of the Hoopa Valley Tribe, we have a major 
diversion of water in our system, and so we're working on a lot of the things related to our water is actually diverted into the Central Valley, into the Sacramento River, and so a whole bunch of things going on. And then more more recently, um, I saw the articles. Um, we're, we're on a number of the um, co-management groups um, that assess and evaluate different things. For example, um, there was a large-scale adult fish die-off in 2002, and so since that time, the Bureau of Reclamation has developed an EIS and at times, they've utilized actually Trinity River water because it's cold water, probably one of the that you can control anyway. And so we evaluate those types of things uh, throughout the year. We're evaluating different things like um, juvenile fish production and that type of thing. But the more recent event that you're talking about was a wildfire. I think it's called a McKinney fire up in Siskiyou County, up in Karuk country. And um, there were different thunderstorms that we're, we're, we're dealing with uh, wildland fire right now, uh, right near the Hooper Reservation. Uh, there's, I think it might be the one, first or second largest fire going in California right now, the, the Six River Complex. And so around the 1st of August, there was a major uh, thunderstorm event. Lightning triggered the fires, but there were also large freshets. Of, um, in the Trinity system, we saw the North Fork and a couple of tributaries in the upper Trinity River that were affected. Um, there were large debris uh, torrents. Uh, the river was dirty, very unusual for this time of the year. Uh, the Salmon River, uh, a major tributary on the main stem of the Klamath up river of the uh, Hooper Reservation, also saw freshets and uh, actual fish fish die-offs. Um, when we first heard about it, uh, what I had heard, they, they were mostly sucker species. But later, the McKinney Fire, which was up further up the main stem of the Klamath near um, probably 20 miles upriver of a happy camp. Um, there was an active fire there. One of the earlier fires that started in uh, the runoff from that um, in a tributary, they saw actual salmonid juveniles um, that had uh, had succumbed to, I, I think it was a lack of oxygen, um, but it was runoff from an active fire that had occurred, and um, there was a lot of concern about that. I saw uh, ticker thing on CNN on it on a Saturday a while back. And so major concerns are to continue to be monitoring. Uh, one of the things about Chinook, um, different life histories and different species, Chinook are um, usually out by this time. They're, they're migrating out to go into the ocean, but there are species that spend their life history like steelhead and coho salmon that are in the streams year round. So Definite cause of concern, and um, people are looking at, you know, what can you do about it? And some of the things I've saw in terms of um, solutions are uh, there's a real movement afoot to um, to reintroduce uh, indigenous uh, wildfires as a mechanism to kind of reduce the field loading. Um, it has a multitude of other um, other um, benefits, and a lot of tribes are promoting that, and um, so those are some things that we could do perhaps to mitigate and maybe lessen severity. What wildland fire anymore is when it gets in the wilderness area, they, um, unless there's a town or uh, structures uh, endangered, um, it kind of just goes until the, uh, the rains and the, and the uh, fall and early winter months. So uh, hopefully I captured your question there and I'll take a pause here. I said a lot there, <laughs> yeah. any questions or not. Yeah. 
Well, I'm curious to know, do you have uh, a large population of subsistence salmon fishers among the Hoopa people? Um, there are two tribes, Hoopa Valley and Yurok tribe, um, have what are called federally reserved fishing rights, and that entitles us to half of the fish that are destined to return, like, like some of the areas in the, um, the Bolt case in western Washington, Oregon has a fish allocation. Um, but at this time, um, the major, the largest runs that um, wasn't historically the largest, but the fall run is the largest run that presently exists. And the projected run sizes this year are such that they're probably not, it, it's a, um, it's an allocation to both tribes. Last year it was a little, it was about 8,300 uh, adult fall Chinook. I think this year's about a, in the order of a little over 9,000. Uh, and that's shared between Hoopa and Yurok tribes. And then their spring run and then uh, coho salmon are listed as a threatened species. Um, and then steelhead, um, because of the, the, the sizes of steelhead, um, they're not impacted real heavily in our net fishery, gillnet fisheries primarily. And these families, um, you know, earlier we heard about some of these folks up in Alaska that are really, really hurting their uh, family finances, culturally as well. Are, are you feeling some of those same impacts there in Northern California? Actually, yeah. That word that comes to mind here, I've heard it, um, is food sovereignty. Um, it's kind of like, um, what can you do to depend on a food source and salmon and different um Fish species are very important. Uh, they supplement the diet. People smoke, can, and preserve the fish for um, sometimes year-round uses. Um, they're a part of the major part of the ceremonies that we have. So um, when there's reduced numbers, it certainly um, has a major effect there. And um, it's, I think, um, your first guest there said, you know, that that. To some degree, it's 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 uh, a sustainable food source that has always been there, and that's what our that's what my job is is to make sure that keeps uh, happening for tribal people. But the fact that there's a food source right in right through a river that flows through your reservation is very important. And um, their fall runs we start in about the first of uh, September for us, and then goes into uh, early October. And then we see some silvers or coho salmon later in the year, and then steelhead almost year-round. So there's some access to uh, a fish species or or um, food fish food source uh, pretty much year-round. Uh, lamprey eels is another one that comes in in the spring months. So definitely um, a real dependence upon that. And at times, I've always said this. Uh, at times, it was uh, directly related to the survival of the people. So that's very important to the tribe. You talked about earlier uh, an environmental impact statement and then also with regard to how wildfires or indigenous fires are managed. And going forward, um, what do you see on the horizon? Is this an issue? Is this a challenge that that um, if people work together and partner the right way that they can they can really address this issue? Or, or do you think this is just going to be the trend going forward? Um. I'm never one to say give up. Uh, I think our people are resilient, are survivors um, on different things um, historically, 
and in contemporary times that we're in, um, I think there's some things that we can do to uh, be really helpful. For example, on the Trinity River, um, still more than half of our water is exported. Um, about 100 miles upriver, our reservation is exported into the Central Valley. And the Biden, uh, it's not Biden, but the bipartisan infrastructure law affords things for climate change. Well, in the reservoir that stores the water, uh, the system hasn't been upgraded for a long time. And so there's some, the Bear Reclamation operates the project. Uh, they've done a number of what's called um, uh, appraisal studies. I strongly suggest that um, as the future goes forward here in climate change, climate change for us is the, the Trinity Alps was like a large um, freezer. The snow, 9,000, 10,000 feet um, elevation, it was stored in the form of snowpack and it ran into the reservoir. Well, now we see warming trends throughout the winter months. It goes off at the surface, run off into the reservoir. So anyway, the infrastructure law and uh, that potential source of money is is a major um, area where there could be some things that would offset the onset of climate change and temperature is a major vector for fish populations. But also an issue that Hoopa has been directly involved in is um, there's a law in place that allows for the funding to be accessed called the Central Valley Project Improvement Act. And that has a provision. It added a purpose to the Central Valley. Prior to that, um, it was only agriculture, hydropower, and those types of things. But it, in 92, that legislation added environmental restoration, I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but um, to the purpose for the project. And one of the things that were really important was the water and power customers that, in our case, uh, benefited from the diversion of our water for 40 or 50 years now, were to be the ones that uh, paid a surcharge on their water contracts uh, to pay for it. And it's a major issue that we're pursuing presently in other areas, including litigation with the Bureau of Reclamation. We're speaking with Michael Orcutt. Uh, he is in Eureka, California, member of the Hoopa Tribe, and he's giving us an update in terms of how the salmon are impacted in California by wildfires and other factors, and also giving us a little bit of policy in terms of um, what's on the horizon and how lawmakers and others are working to address uh, what appears to be a pretty substantial crisis right now. Folks, if you've got a question or a comment, give us a call. We're talking about the salmon runs that should be booming in parts of Alaska right now, and unfortunately they are not. The number is 1-800-996-2848. Once again, give us a call, one 800 996-2848. Let's bring in our third guest now. Joining us from Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada is Bob Chamberlain. He's the chair of the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance and previous vice president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. He's from Kwikwasutinuhawakmis First Nation. Bob, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, well done on pronouncing my nation's name. <laughs> okay. I'm sitting here with my fingers crossed, Bob, and <laughs> I really appreciate that. I've practiced that quite a few times. Thanks so much. Well, Bob, tell us uh, the status of the salmon up where you are. Well, there are a number of runs across the province of BC that are actually showing an increase in run size return. But this is all, you know, of course, very much um, region-based. So the Fraser River, I'm looking at the numbers from the um, 
Pacific Salmon uh, Commission right now, and I'm looking at numbers that show that there's a remarkable decrease in run size for the Fraser River, yet up in the North Coast area in the Skeena, there's a, a much better return as well as on the West Coast. So it's some runs are returning well, and others are still very abysmal. And we'll what is the thought as to why that is? Earlier, we heard our reporter Olivia talk about these water temperatures could be a factor. Some salmon, some fish are uh, thrive better in certain temperatures than others. What, what's your thought on that? Well, I, I completely agree. You know, when I think about the Fraser River stocks, they have to migrate, or they don't have to. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans has stated that 90% of the out-migrating salmon from the Fraser River uh, migrate through the uh, Salish Sea and then up through the Johnstone Straits. Well, I've learned that there's elevated water temperatures in the Salish Sea, which then makes them more susceptible to disease and pathogens and not do so well. And then, of course, after the Salish Sea, they run smack dab into a whole range of fish farms, which have disease pathogens shed and sea lice. And so for me, this combination where the warm water makes them more susceptible for impacts and then running into a host of impacts from this uh, fish farm industry, it shows me that uh, we need to be able to find every measure to protect wild salmon because we're facing historic low returns to the Fraser River for successive years. We're speaking right now with Bob Chamberlain. He's up in British Columbia, Canada. He's given us an update on how the salmon has been impacted this year. Give us a call. 1-800-996-2848 to get your comments on the air. We'll be right back. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There is still time to get your perspective in about salmon. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance. We're speaking with him right now about how the salmon runs are being impacted in parts of British Columbia. Bob, when salmon populations fluctuate, like what we're learning about today, this year specifically, in, in previous years, parts perhaps global warming, other issues, climate change. But what does that tell you about the overall health of salmon when their populations fluctuate like this? Well, it's been said to me that when we have extreme fluctuations, like what we're seeing in the Fraser River, as an example, in British Columbia, these are definitely warning signs that things are not going well, Uh, whether it's the impacts of global warming. And there's many. I mean, we have wildfires, we have flooding which, you know, really have an impact on water temperature in rivers and and silting of of streaming beds and so on. But there's so many different issues that need to be taken into consideration. But what I always say is I think the federal government here in Canada needs to understand the immense contribution that wild salmon means to the environment, to the economy, and to First Nations people. Because we have issues of food security, and as our first guest spoke of earlier about the cost of buying things in isolated communities is astronomical, 
And what that does is it heightens the dependence on traditional foods. And it's not simply a menu choice, but it is it is who we are and what we do as peoples. And Bob, do a, a lot of First Nations people in Canada rely on fish year-round? Well, when I think about it, I've been told here in British Columbia, we have 203 First Nations, and 90% of them rely upon as a traditional food source. Now, when you consider that nationally, so that's essentially it's 180 First Nations in British Columbia, approximately, and that is just under one-third of all First Nations in Canada rely upon Pacific wild salmon. And so to me, when I think about issues of food security or inherent rights, commitments from government uh, for reconciliation and so forth, and this is where I see an intense need for the government to do something very comprehensive in terms of protection of salmon at every opportunity, but also to get on with habitat restoration, uh, which is going to be beneficial to the environment and to British Columbians uh, specifically, but it's going to do a, a great deal of effort to help First Nations realize their inherent birthrights. And Bob, how are relationships between First Nations governments and federal fish and wildlife management there in Canada? Well, there has been a lot of information that's come out recently, largely through access to information requests to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And what we've uncovered is the fact that the government is altering science in order to fit into management goals, which of course makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And if there is a federal department uh, that has the, the worst track record and the worst relationship with First Nations people, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is in the top two, without question. So what are First Nations people doing in an effort to, to improve that relationship or, or improve the response of, of Canadian uh, wildlife officials? Well, what we are seeing now is, that, and it's really sad that it's taken historic low returns to have First Nations start to work more cohesively with the common voice. And this is something that I work on every day to assist in developing a strong and concise and consistent political voice about the needs for protection. And for me, it doesn't matter really if it's fish farm impacts, whether it's logging impacts, whether it's oil and gas. We need the governments to hear from First Nations that the a comprehensive examination and reparation of impacts is what is needed because we can't just, you know, take care of one stressor and think it's all going to be okay. We have to deal with the multiple stressors in order to see the benefit of healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks return. Now, Bob, another issue I wanted to talk about, and it's somewhat controversial, the whole notion of, of bycatch, where salmon are caught in nets that are intended for other fish. Now, is that an issue that you folks are having to deal with up there in Canada as well? Well, I think the great, one of the greatest challenges that any um, governing body is going to have is mixed stock fisheries. And so, you know, with like the early Stewart run up way up at the top of the Fraser River as an example— has been historically challenged for far too long. But when you have a, a great push of sockeye coming through, it's a little difficult, of course, to determine how many of those would be early stewards and how many of them would be early summer or mid-summer uh, runs. So it's always a challenge. 
But, you know, I think about our traditional ways and practices where we harvested with weirs at the mouths of rivers and so on, where we were able to be more selective and be able to attain our needs, but not at the expense of the resource. I want to go back to Olivia, Olivia uh, bycatch, and specifically up there in parts of Alaska. How big a factor is that in in this whole discussion with regard to these dwindling numbers of, of some types of salmon? Yeah, I mean, in terms of it being um, a contributing factor, it, it it is a contributing factor. I will say that the discussion can tend to focus on bycatch and inter, what's called intercept fisheries, um, sometimes a little heavily uh, just in terms of it being the driving cause of the chum crash. But scientists are saying, I want to be very clear, scientists are starting to say that the driving cause of the chum crash is climate change. Um, Climate change caused marine heat waves. However, when you get down to such a small population, people argue and scientists argue that getting every spawner back into the river system really matters. And when you have um, ocean-going vessels scooping up those spawners, it's hard to say that that can't have an impact, right? So what we're talking about in bycatch right now is um, in the Bering Sea trawling pollock fishery mainly, uh, they're scooping up about 9 to 16% of the chum bound for coastal western Alaska, right? And that's all of coastal western Alaska, not just the Yukon-Kuskokwim. Um, only 1% of that is is a type of fish called fall chum salmon. It's a little different than summer chum and the chum that runs in other parts of western Alaska. So one, they're scooping up about 1% of um, their catches bound for it, the Yukon specifically. Um, so when you look at that, it's not, they're also saying that that's likely only about 1% of the overall run sizes, right? So about 9 to 16% of this bycatch is chum bound for coastal western Alaska, but then that's only likely 1% of the fish that's actually going to be going up the river anyway. So it is you know, you can't say that 1% isn't a factor. Of course it is. Of course, getting every spawner up the river matters. And it does feel like a slap in the face, I think, for a lot of people that commercial fishing is allowed to be open in the Bering Sea for um, non-subsistence, often non-native fishermen, while it's closed to subsistence fishermen on the river. I mean, I think that's really hard for people to see. Does okay. that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And I want to talk more about commercial fishing interests as well and, and ask Bob, um, Bob, commercial fishing interests there in British Columbia, do those, um, do you folks, are you th- are, are First Nations people, are, is that another group that you have to deal with in, in terms of um, negotiation? And, and what's that relationship like? Does that impact some of these efforts that you're undertaking to improve salmon runs in parts of British Columbia? Well, there, there's much more unity uh, in crisis. I mean, when there's an abundancy, uh, there's always tension about allocations uh, per uh, groups. But I think what's happening here in, uh, in Canada is people are starting to wrap their minds around the difference between an inherent right and an Aboriginal right protected in the Constitution versus a privilege of a Crown license to go fishing. But when I, I just want to agree uh, about the intercept fishery, because I know this is something that's gotten quite a bit of media attention here in Canada. 
is the intercept of BC-bound Chinook and other salmon by Alaska fishermen commercially. And I can't, I'm sorry, I was hoping to find the the actual uh, number for the area, but there's a well-known specific area in Alaska that if that was closed, we would be able to see a greater benefit of return of salmon to British Columbia. So it seems like we're conserving and Alaska is benefiting. And when we're at such extreme low numbers, it's time to really start to take a look at the entire theater of Pacific salmon and not just ones that are uh, aligned with our boundaries. That's a really, really interesting point that you make there in terms of these competing priorities and, and other indigenous populations as well. And there's only so many salmon out there and, and how one community or one population fishes can impact another. Um, Bob, what do you think, I mean, going forward, I mean, how confident are you that collectively indigenous peoples, whether they be in Canada, whether they be in British Columbia, whether they be in Northern California, are going to be able to, to work together and really solve what's turning into be a, a huge crisis? Well, I would really welcome a discussion with Alaska First Nations and uh, Alaska tribes and the Washington State tribes with BC First Nations. Um, with the strength of treaties that, uh, that I'm aware of, uh, as well as the evolving legal landscape for First Nations and British Columbia, uh, I think that we could be that uh, voice of reason, that voice consistent with our, our teachings and practices to ensure that this incredibly valuable resource is not eradicated by endless government mismanagement and avoiding of truth. Um, that would be something that would be really quite amazing to see and certainly something I'm open to help uh, facilitate. And what do you see, Bob, as the biggest risk of all these different factors that we've been discussing today with regard to climate change, some of these policy decisions, some of these practices with regards to type of fishing? What, what do you think really stands out right now? What do we most need to be paying attention to? <laughs> I, I'm mindful of a meme that I saw that said, you know, restoring salmon runs is not rocket science. It's way more complicated. <laughs> and, you know, there are so many different factors to be considered. Uh, for me, I start to think about how do we protect the salmon that are leaving the river? Because with only 1% of them making it back to spawn, that is what I see as the most critical portion of their life. And so, we need to be able to protect the wild salmon as they head out to the ocean and face the, uh, the global warming and food availability that we know is occurring out there in competition with other runs. Because if we don't do that, we're going to see more historic lows, which means more um, historic lows eggs being laid and more historic low smolts leaving the river. And it's going to be a painful downward spiral that I think that we're on the cusp of right now. I want to go back to Michael Orcutt. He's there in Eureka, California. Michael, we've only got a few minutes before we wrap up the show, but I want to give you a chance to chime in here. And what would you most like to see going forward with regard to, to some of this talk of, of Indigenous peoples working more closely together to solve this crisis in the salmon runs? Um, probably um, biggest one would be, um, I think, most tribal folks kind of look at things what called gravel to gravel management. It's a hatchery, it's the habitat, it's the ocean, uh, it's the harvest in the ocean and mixed stock fisheries. 
But one of the things that I think are really um, neat, in my opinion, is this uh, tribal ecological knowledge that's being more formally recognized. And I just think it's um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, tribal people have viewed the landscape and how it how how it uh, exists and how they want it to what they want it kind of to look like, or at least their role in shaping what it might look like. And so those are all things that are very very um, important um, things that tribal people bring to the table. And I think that that gives me some hope. Um, again, there's a whole, uh, I think he's, I thought that was pretty neat where he said about the rocket science and the simplicity of it. But all of that is that I think if we're all pulling in the same direction, uh, understanding that it's uh, uh, a lot of factors that are at play uh, doing that, I think that's my hope at least um, for the future. And Michael, how closely are you folks working there with um, subsistence fishers there in Northern California, Hoopa Tribe and others, and just explaining what some of these issues are and working with them uh, on a grassroots level so they can improve their catches and and they can um, thrive like they've been doing for previous generations and get back to those good salmon runs that they've been accustomed to, that their ancestors were accustomed to? Um, our fishery is pretty much entirely subsistence at this point, but a couple of things to add. There. So a lot of things that um, we've had a couple of um, so-called salmon disasters and there's federal dollars. And some of that money we've used to build infrastructure, things like ice machines, uh, nets, um, things that will make uh, the fishery more accessible to individual tribal members. Uh, but the other one that I wanted I was hoping I could get a comment on this idea of a selective harvest uh, where um, those, if you look, there's a book here at Humboldt State, uh, now called Cal Poly Humboldt, um, has a book about Northern California fishing techniques, but tribes used to put weirs in for, for, for millennia, and those were the ways that it was communal, it was shared. But today as we speak, uh, we have a weir that we operate that can selectively remove the ones the endangered ones, the ones that are uh, potentially um, part of the Endangered Species Act, uh, and that is a really, really useful tool in the selective ability to release the ones that you don't want to harm. It's, it's non-lethal, where the nets are, um, those net fisheries are they're pretty much somewhat lethal, and so that ability is a kind of building off a, a technology and a, a, a way that tribal people harvested fish for a long time, and we're kind of building that into a contemporary approach these days. So. That is all the time we have for our show today. Before we go, I want to thank our guests, Olivia Eberts, Michael Orcutt, and Bob Chamberlain for a really enlightening conversation on salmon in Alaska and the Pacific Northwest. We're back again live tomorrow, broadcasting from the Santa Fe Indian Market, celebrating their 100th year. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.